A 55-year-old woman has constant dull, achy pain in her pelvis with some pressure and burning in her vagina. She has a history of fibroids that has required multiple fibroid removal surgeries and ultimately a hysterectomy. The pain started after the hysterectomy, and at first she thought it was a normal part of the healing process. But eventually the pain has become constant and overbearing. It is hard to sit and even extremely painful to have sexual intercourse. She has been to multiple physicians, all of whom recommended various medications, but with incomplete relief. She's tired of being in pain and wonders if this is what the rest of her life will be like. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome and thank you for being on The Hurt by the Female Pain Docs. We have a very special guest for today's episode. It's Dr. Kiran Patel. Dr. Kiran Patel is a board-certified anesthesiologist and interventional pain physician. She graduated from New Jersey Medical School, also my alma mater. She completed her anesthesiology training at Columbia University and went on to do her interventional pain fellowship there as well. She has also completed training in medical acupuncture at Harvard Medical School. She has been in practice for several years with a focus on pelvic pain, and she's a pioneer in the use of neuromodulation for pelvic pain, and one of the actually few women pain physicians to implement new applications of dorsal root ganglion neuromodulation, which we're going to learn about very soon. Dr. Patel's practice philosophy is to blend medical innovation, evidence-based medicine, and compassion to meet each patient's individual goals. She strives to improve functionality and allow patients to resume an active lifestyle. We are so excited to have Dr. Patel here today. By the way, no relation, but having seen you in our pain circle for the past several years, I'm really glad we got to take some time out to chat about a topic that we are both passionate about, which is pelvic pain. So before we begin, just so our listeners know, we've had several episodes on pelvic pain, including pudendal neuralgia, injections, medications, lifestyle modifications, and more. But in certain circumstances, pain can be refractory, basically still be present despite all of these interventions. And that's what brings us to neuromodulation. So Dr. Patel, thank you for being here again. And let's start with with that. Tell us what exactly is neuromodulation? Thank you so much for having me, uh, Alopi. This is so wonderful. I think what you're doing with this podcast and empowering patients is just phenomenal. And, um, you know, I think that it's something that has definitely been lacking in in kind of the, the web and the podcast space and the social media space. So I definitely applaud you for what you're doing here. And, and I really appreciate you having me as a guest. Um, so it's a good question. What is this funny word neuromodulation? Well, it is defined as the application of targeted electrical, chemical, and biologic technologies to the nervous system in order to improve function and quality of life. So in my most ready application of it, it's essentially applying electrical energy, most commonly, um, to the nervous system 
to improve uh, a patient's pain and and more importantly, their uh, functionality and overall quality of life. It's very interesting. And so like you said, we're applying this electrical sort of stimulation to the nerves. How long has this technology been around? Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Neuromodulation has been around originally since the 1960s in uh, the United States in terms of FDA-approved products. However, um, it actually the use of the field of neuromodulation actually dates back into you know uh, Mesopotamia and also to ancient Greek uh, literature, where the use of um, electrical rays, sea rays, were used for the management of chronic migraines, if you will. So this concept of using electricity to affect the nervous system has actually been around for quite some time, and certainly it's evolved since um, ancient Greece and Mesopotamia. But um, in the United States, the earliest types of neuromodulation devices, um, most basically spinal cord stimulators, go back to the 1960s, um, and it evolved dramatically and at a very rapid pace through the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and certainly into a very robust field where we're seeing constant um, development of new innovation and application of that um, innovation to new clinical conditions. And I find that very fascinating because I've, through my several years in practice as well, and when I was a fellow a few years ago as well, have seen the technologies evolve. And they started off with some simple types of neuromodulation devices and have evolved to so many different companies. So could you tell us and our listeners essentially about what are the different types of neuromodulation devices that are available? Sure. So most standardly is something called a spinal cord stimulator, and that stimulates a region of the central nervous system called the dorsal column. Um, and that, that is what has been around and available in the United States since the 1960s. Um, more recently, a field called dorsal root ganglion stimulation has evolved, and that is where we apply electrical energy around the dorsal root ganglion, which is a purely sensory structure. What excites me about this application of neuromodulation is that we can completely isolate um, a patient's uh, sensory function by, by targeting this um, area of the spine. So whereas if somebody has focal foot pain per se, I'm going to give you a very basic example. Um, if they have foot pain, say in the bottom of their foot or in, you know, their ankle, I'm able to target the dorsal root ganglions, which correlate just to their foot. Whereas previously, if they had foot pain, I may have to use a spinal cord stimulator, which is going to stimulate them potentially from the waist um, down through the legs and then down to the feet. So they may end up getting stimulation in areas that they don't necessarily need and not having stimulation focused exactly where their painful region is. That being said, there are reasons for patients to have spinal cord stimulators. If you have very widespread pain, pain that is potentially from the waist down all the way to the toes, um, you know, that's a reason to still consider spinal cord stimulation. And then beyond spinal cord stimulation and dorsal root ganglion stimulation, there's a field called peripheral nerve stimulation where we are able to isolate a very specific nerve of the body. 
So if it is, say, a person who has persistent shoulder pain, we may isolate their shoulder pain with either a suprascapular peripheral nerve stimulator or an axillary nerve peripheral stimulator. And this allows us to provide another type of very focused um, stimulation. In general, the peripheral nerve stimulators are not implanted. There are some systems where they are implanted permanently, uh, but I would say they're the, a good you know, half, half of the systems on the market are actually uh, temporary placement. Okay, interesting. So basically, you've described three areas of neuromodulation devices, uh, just to kind of simplify it for our listeners. So there's spinal cord stimulators, which attacks the dorsal columns, like you said, and that that uh, basically targets more than just the sensory nerves. There's dorsal root ganglion stimulators, which uh, target mostly the sensory nerves, like you said, and then peripheral nerve stimulators, um, which is great because like you said, depending on the type of pain that the patient may have, there are different options available, um, which I'm sure our patients are very excited to hear about that they can they can kind of have different therapies available and some might be a bit more invasive than the other. Is that correct? Yes, that is absolutely correct. That is a great summary. And in terms of the different types of pain conditions that you may see, and I know you, you're you an expert in neuromodulation for all types of pain conditions, but you're definitely passionate about pelvic pain, which is great because we love having more women pain physicians focusing on pelvic pain. Um, but tell us about what types of conditions you see for pelvic pain and what types of patients may be good candidates essentially for, for Neurostim. So I've actually published a case series um, uh, regarding pelvic pain and the variety of patients who were included in this early uh, case series included, you know, those who had had uh, post-hysterectomy pain, uh, post-vaginal mesh pain, vulvodynia, uh, lichen uh, sclerosis, interstitial cystitis, pedendal neuralgia, penile pain, uh, post-clitoral biopsy-related pain, endometriosis, coccidinia, those who had had sacral fractures, and those who also had a diagnosis of pelvic congestion. Um, since then, you know, the, the list of different types of uh, pelvic surgeries that patients have had, leaving them with chronic or persistent pelvic pain, um, has continued to grow. And I'm continuing to find by targeting the appropriate dorsal root ganglions for these patients with neuromodulation, we're able to uh, improve their pain and their quality of life. That's really interesting to hear because like you mentioned, there are so many different sort of diagnoses or conditions that patients can have that can make them eligible for pelvic um, pelvic stimulators, essentially neuromodulation. Um, what nerves do you target, sort of in a very basic way, so our patients understand uh, in terms of what type of pain condition they may have? Does that change what area of the body you may target? It definitely changes what area of the body we may target. You know, I think that um, one of my biggest things is that. I feel the term pedendal neuralgia is overdiagnosed. I think when a patient comes into many practitioners' office, if they have any pain within the pelvis, they are immediately given a diagnosis of pelvic pain. When we know that there is a plethora of nerves within the pelvis um, that can cause pain. And depending on a particular patient's um, surgical history, 
they may not just have the pedental nerve, which is implicated. It may be any of any of those nerves within the pelvis. Um, you know, and so important to kind of, as I say, peel back the onions. When I see a new patient who has a history of pelvic surgery, I often ask them to bring me their operative reports or procedural reports. So I can see, you know, was there a particular nerve that was dissected around or was there a particular nerve that was, um, you know, resected or um, was there an area of the pelvis where there was long, um, long-standing um, retraction done where particular nerves may have been damaged. And what this then keys me into is then thinking very critically about these nerves and tracing them back to the spinal segments that contribute to them. And once I'm able to trace them back to the spinal levels that contribute to those pelvic nerves, I'm able to identify exactly where to put the electrodes um, and then affect change and improve the patient's pain. That is very interesting. And I like that you mentioned peeling back the onion because there are so many different sort of layers to pelvic pain, right? Not just, you know, the, the nerves, but also like the, the other aspects in terms of their history and different uh, ways that their pain can get worse. So I really like that you're focusing on many different aspects of their pelvic pain and then also honing on the, the nerves that could be involved. Um, and that kind of brings us to our next question, actually. Do you have like a like an algorithm or sort of like a treatment course that these patients may sort of proceed with before they end up with neuromodulation? So, for example, peripheral nerve blocks. Um, we've talked about peripheral nerve blocks on our previous episodes before, but could you talk us through what that sort of treatment course is before a patient may be eligible for neuromodulation? Yeah, you know, I think that's always a that's always a point of discussion among physicians within the pain field. You know, before you consider neuromodulation, do you do peripheral nerve blocks? And I think there are pros and cons of it. I think the advantages of it is when I have a very complex operative report, so say a patient has had pelvic surgery and they've had extensive surgery, and I think there might be several nerves that may be damaged that I could potentially identify and name. Now, for, I'll tell you this, for all of the large nerves that we can name that have names to them, there are many, many smaller nerves that we are unable to name. So if I can peel back the onion and identify some of these larger nerves that are damaged, it will then allow me to um, decide on some diagnostic blocks and see what components, if any, of the patient's pain um, subside. So what we mean by a diagnostic block is using local anesthetic to, to basically, um, you know, deposit that around a peripheral nerve and see if that decreases a patient's pain. Um, and if I'm able to do that, then that's, that's a huge victory for me because I'm hoping that the patient gets some long-term benefit from it by shutting down the pain cycle, but sometimes they don't. However, if they only get pain relief for the length of the local anesthetic, you know, the lidocaine or the long-lasting lidocaine that I may use, it's still beneficial because it tells me that I might be able to do something to those particular nerves or the spinal segments that contribute to those nerves, and that may take away the patient's pain for a longer period of time. So essentially, diagnostic blocks can be useful when we think there may be some larger nerves implicated that we can actually name. 
Now, say I have a patient who clearly has what we call neuropathic pain in the pelvis, that kind of burning, um, you know, tingling sensations, numbness, painful numbness in the pelvic region. But I can't isolate it to a particular peripheral nerve. For these patients, I think it may be better to just kind of trace it back to the majority of nerves within the pelvis and the seg spinal segments that contribute to them. So without being able to name specific large nerves within the pelvis, I know the fact that the majority of the nerves within the pelvis are innervated by L1 and S2. And so for those patients where I can't name the nerve and I can't perform a diagnostic block because probably so many of these smaller nerve branches have been damaged, knowing that I'm going to place the leads for the trial, because we do a trial for these therapies, um, meaning the patient gets to try it out before they decide if they want to commit to a permanent implantation. Typically, that's anywhere from five to seven days. Um, it allows me to place those trial leads at L1 and S2. and um, so it really depends on the patient, whether peripheral nerve blocks are useful um, in terms of diagnostic capability, but also in therapeutic capability as well. Does that answer your question, Alopi? Absolutely. No, that, that was a great answer. And I really like that. Um, our, our listeners are getting to understand that because like you said, oftentimes patients come in and they expect this nice little sort of diagnosis based on a textbook sort of understanding of a pain syndrome, but that doesn't always happen. And it's hard to identify exactly what nerves may be involved. So I I do appreciate you breaking it down for our patients that oftentimes when we can't identify exactly what nerve, we thankfully have these other opportunities available to target the majority of the the nerve contributors that basically could be causing that pain. So I think um, that was very well explained. You know, it's I see oftentimes a lot of patients, and I know you do too, who've had multiple pelvic surgeries. And sometimes it's nerve damage, nerve damage has occurred and they have been promised that their pain will be quote unquote fixed or decreased by additional surgery. And that really complicates the picture. It makes it even more challenging to identify specific peripheral nerves that are implicated in their pain. Um, and I think many of our patients have can relate to that vulnerability of, you know, not feeling like they don't have many options, but being presented with the idea that additional surgery is going to help them you know, decrease their overall pain. Um, and I think that's a really vulnerable position that a lot of patients come to us at. And I, I know you can relate to that. We talk about this all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like you said, it, it, oftentimes patients feel like they may not have they may not have any other options left besides more surgical intervention. And it's really good to know that there are other women physicians, such as yourself, that can provide them with another option besides more surgery or even opioids. And that was one of the other questions I wanted to actually ask you about. But you've been in practice several years, as we've known, over a decade now, and you've probably seen the opioid pendulum sort of swing in the other direction in terms of, you know, opioids being prescribed freely versus, you know, very, very cautiously. And now we're kind of thankfully swinging back in some sort of um, middle direction in terms of, you know, we have to justify opioids when they're reasonable. But what have you seen in terms of patients who thankfully have neuromodulation available in terms of their opioid therapies? Um, I'm sure you've seen positive things, but could you tell us more about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I have seen the pendulum swing 
um, you know, I, I know you have as well during our, our period of our training, you know, we were in, uh, even as medical students through residency and fellowship and then practice, I've seen the pendulum kind of swing several times, um, meaning, and what we mean by that is the availability of opioids to treat uh, pain and the acceptance of opioids as a treatment to treat, to treat neuropathic pain. Um, you know, in the, I would say in the bulk of my training, I have seen America as a society kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, as prescription opioids have increased in the community, we have also seen an increase in the amount of overdose related deaths. Um, and that's a very upsetting and dire fact. We see these statistics, you know, um, highlighted by the CDC and the FDA um, in multiple publications. Um, and we saw that, you know, only a few years ago, some guideline, guidelines came out about how, what was recommended as limitations to have for, for practitioners to prescribe opioids, saying that a certain amount of morphine milliequivalents was what is recommended and that there should be caution with morphine milliequivalents above a certain amount. The one benefit of this is that I think we have saved a lot of lives. We have prevented a lot of people from developing prescription opioid addiction and potentially contributing to overdose. Um, but I also think that as it relates to neuromodulation, there has been an additional benefit. We have actually studied within our field the effect of taking patients off of opioids and the effect it has on their uh, neuromodulation trials and their success with neuromodulation therapies. So, you know, one of the things I love about neuromodulation is that we, we do a trial. So if it is a spinal cord stimulator or a dorsal root ganglion stimulator, a patient will have a trial device that is not, you know, physically implanted in them, meaning there are no cuts and, you know, incisions for the trial period. So it's, it's basically two electrodes that are introduced via needles into the patient's back and taped to the back. And they go home and they use it for up to seven days in my particular practice. You know, that period can range from anywhere from three to five to seven days, um, occasionally 10 days in some practices uh, where the patient uses the trial device. And they basically live their life and they see if the device has decreased their overall pain and improved their functionality. And what we've seen for patients who are weaned down from opioid medication or completely off, we see that they actually have a better outcome. And so, you know, most recently, and the I think many of you, you know, we're in New York City, and the New York Times is one of our bigger uh, news publications, but the CDC released a new set of guidelines for providers, healthcare providers in terms of opioids. So opioid guidelines. It's like a 229-page document. And I was disappointed to see that interventional pain therapies were not highlighted as a way of, you know, strongly advocated as a way of alleviating patients' pain. Um, 
And, you know, right now there's a 60-day 60 60 day open period, and I think everybody in our field is, you know, citing studies that, that have indicated that we have improved patients' quality of life in an opioid-sparing way. And um, we're all kind of, you know, on this mission to to, to cite the data that we, we've amassed over the last 10 years that, hey, we can improve people's quality of life and they don't have to take opioids. And in fact, if they take opioids, they don't do as well with these therapies. But if they don't take their opioids and we can get them off, they sail, they do so well with them. So, you know, I think the pendulum is swinging the opposite direction. I just hope that we don't forget all of the wonderful things we have learned that how patients can do with these therapies, particularly when uh, opioid doses are reduced. I absolutely agree with you. I think um, that's why it's very important for us to to openly and on social media sort of talk about the other therapies and interventions uh, that are available, especially for pelvic pain, but all pain conditions in general, because it can oftentimes... Uh, save them the hassle of being on opioid medications or potentially even further surgical intervention. So I'm happy that, again, you know, we have people like you in the field to, to progress neuromodulation and then be able to advocate for non-interventional sort of ways to also deal with it. And by non-interventional, I mean non-surgical, even though neuromodulation and in injections in general can be considered interventional as well. But we definitely have many different options available and patients do deserve to know that, that it doesn't have to be medications necessarily. And I, I like that you already spoke about the trial versus the permanent sort of um, stim placement. Do you mind just telling a little bit more sort of like a quick overview about a patient kind of presents to your office and they let's say they're a great candidate for, for neuromodulation an overview of the trial versus permanent and what to kind of expect that day in terms of sedation, no sedation, antibiotics, how long the procedure may be? Sure, definitely. So for a neuromodulation uh, or a patient who comes in with neuropathic pain, persistent burning, um, numbness or painful burning and numbness, I may recommend, depending on where their pain is distributed, um, a neuromodulation technique. And that might be spinal cord stimulation or that might be dorsal root ganglion stimulation. So based on their distribution of pain and whether potentially I can name a peripheral nerve that may be injured, I'll decide which therapy they're the best candidate for. I always explain to my patients, I do as much patient education as I can with them. Uh, we send them home with additional information, both um, web-based resources, but also, you know, physical, you know, paper resources that they can read. Some people prefer that. Um, so, you know, we really try to guide the patient education to what the patient responds to best. Some, for some, it's what's on the web and what, what I can send them to um, on the computer. And for some, it's actual physical um, pieces of paper that they want to be able to sit and read at, at home and share with their family. So once we've done some patient education about you know the particular type of device that they may be a candidate for, um, there's some there's some paperwork that's required. So you know in my office um, we do offer IV sedation if patients want for their spinal cord stimulator trial. It's never mandatory and it is very very light sedation. Um, it's literally enough to just have the patient feel comfortable with the puncture of the needle, um, which you know. 
is, is, is enough that we're still having a conversation and I'm asking them, you know, what they've done the night before. So it's, it's the mildest of sedation and I'm still able to have a full on conversation and ask them meaningful questions. Uh, so, but to do that, we do obtain a medical clearance from their primary physician or cardiologist, um, basically stating that they're okay to to have anesthesia in the office. And then the second step is a, something called a psychological evaluation. And that may be off-putting to some, but you know, there are many people who have uh, deep-seated anxiety or depression that may not have been adequately addressed or treated or recognized even. Um, that's one of the purposes of the psychological evaluation. Most insurance companies or payers want to hear from a third party that the patient doesn't have any deep-seated anxiety or depression that's preventing all of the other therapies they've already tried from helping them feel better. Um, obviously, you know, our patients with persistent pain, they have something called situational anxiety or depression. So say if they have lower back and leg pain, you know, they may go to a restaurant and they may look at all the types of chairs at the restaurant and say, well, uh, they might become very anxious because they don't know what type of chair they're going to be able to sit at for the duration of dinner. Um, and that's what I would call situational depression or anxiety. And I think most patients who suffer from persistent pain have an element to that. But that's not what the purpose of the psychological evaluation is to tease out. Um, it's those who really, you know, need to have further um, psychological treatment, evaluation, therapy um, to better address those conditions before we can adequately treat their pain. And then the other reason that we do the psyche valve is because we want to make sure that the patient understands that we do a temporary trial that does not involve any incisions. And only if the patient themselves feels that they are more functional or that their pain is substantially decreased, will they, as the patient, decide if they go for the permanent implantation. Um, so those, that's the real purpose of the psyche valve. So once you have your medical clearance and your psyche valve, then we can submit to authorization um, for your insurance company. Um, and once we have the approval for the trial procedure, then we can schedule you for the actual trial visit. Um, the trial visit, you know, um, I would say, I always tell my patients plan to be in the office for about two hours at least, because I like to do a lot of reiteration of the education we've done. Uh, prior about the stimulator. I also want to teach them how the device works. They will have a controller, which will you know, basically function like a remote control for their television, allows them to turn it on, turn it off, you know, change the channel, if you will, the, the pattern of stimulation, and then also increase the intensity or decrease the intensity, kind of like the volume button on your remote control at home. So once we've, we've done all this adequate you know, patient education, we'll then take the patient into the procedure room and they'll be laying on their stomach. And then the trials for this can be done in the hospital or they can be done in an office that's certified to do that. Um, for me personally, I do my trials in the office and I do my implants in a hospital or a surgical center. Uh, implant procedures cannot obviously be done in an office. So when the patient comes in, we, we lay them on their stomach um, and clean their back off with sterile solutions, put up some drapes. We give them IV antibiotics. Um, 
And we then, uh, if they're, if they are having sedation, which is not mandatory, I'll give them a little bit of sedation, but still being able to have a full conversation with them and have them answer questions. Um, and then I'll place the electrodes while I am taking x-ray. Once those electrodes are in great position, I will tape the device and connect it to the battery and tape the device to the patient's back. And we'll take them out to recovery and teach them how to use uh, the device and answer any questions that they may have and ask them to demonstrate that they understand how to use the remote control. And then once the patient feels that all of their questions have been answered and maybe a family member who accompanies them also, you know, all of their questions have been answered, um, the patient will go home. And I, you know, my patients have direct means of contacting me every day of their trial. I call them every single day. The representative from the company who, you know, also works um, to help manage the device will be in touch with them every day as well or accessible to them. Um, and so between you know, the representative from the company, myself and the patient, you know, we work as a team to make sure that we are really, you know, optimizing the therapy and trying to our very best ability meet their functional goals and, um, you know, provide them with the best amount of pain relief. So typically that's day one, patient goes home, um, I do seven-day trials. They'll come back about day three or day four. I'll take a look at their dressings. I'll do some more education with them. We may reprogram the device to make sure we're totally optimizing it. And then the patient will go back home, use the device for three to four more days. And then on the seventh day, and, and I, I say seven because that's how I practice, the patient will come back into the office and I'll take off the tape and I will take out the device and no anesthesia is needed for that. It doesn't hurt. It typically just feels weird. And sometimes, you know, depending on how much hair you have on your back, the pain, the tape may bother you, but um, it's generally really well tolerated. And at that point, you know, we'll let the patient decide whether they feel the use of the device met their functional goals and also provided them with an optimal, optimal amount of pain relief. That is excellent. And that was a very thorough breakdown. I really appreciate that for our patients because I'm sure, you know, it, it can be overwhelming not knowing what to expect. How often, or excuse me, how much time after a trial do you proceed to permanent? And are there anything, any other sort of qualifiers or paperwork or anything like that that patients have to go through before that? That's a great question. And you know, it, it is overwhelming. I mean, this is a complex, this is, if this, if you have persistent pain, this is a very nuanced technology and therapy, and there's a lot of layers to it. So that's why I like to present patients with, you know, I tell them to take out their cell phones and video me in the room so that they can hear me telling them about their device. Um, there's videos on our website, on my practice's website, also, my social media, there are videos. There are, like I said, I like to give out paper documents for those who like that. Some people like to go to the device manufacturer website. That's also another great source of information. So I think it's really important to provide patients with as much proper education. And that's why I really appreciate this type of podcast that you have, you know, that you are really putting together and delivering it with such in such an ethical and thoughtful uh, way to patients because there's a lot of bad information out there, but, but podcasts like this really provide patients with a lot of good information. So I, I again, thank you for doing that because it's just so valuable. Um, 
You know, in terms of education after the trial device is removed, I think we need to educate the patient that, you know, they can't have the, the device necessarily implanted the very next day. Most often, we have to obtain authorization for the implant procedure. So the physician that you're seeing um, you needs to document how you've done with the trial and send that documentation to your insurance company and then have them approve the implant procedure. Once the implant procedure is approved, then it can be scheduled. You know, I say when patients, if they definitely, you know, want the implant, I like to schedule it sooner than later. One, because patients know how much pain relief uh, the use of the device has provided them. And it's really almost unbearable for them to think about living without that level of pain relief. Um, and so they're more often than not, if it really is working for them, um, they want it. They want it very quickly. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, even despite, you know, a patient wanting it very quickly, we have to deal with the paperwork of insurance companies and, um, and then obviously booking the operating room time um, as well or the surgical center time in order to do the implant. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then I, 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 I like that you mentioned this as well, because I think, again, it may give patients sort of hope that, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's not working, but you mentioned different programming. And again, the field of neuromodulation has evolved a lot, thankfully, um, in a very good direction, but there are many different sort of programs available to help with their specific type of pain. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that in terms of the different options that are available? Yes, there, there are a lot of options regarding um, the types of programming for spinal cord stimulator devices. And we're learning more and more that certain types of programming um, are optimal for certain types of pain conditions. So the programming that I may use for a condition such as painful diabetic neuropathy may not be the same type of programming that I would use for somebody who has lower back and leg pain following um, lumbar spine surgery. So we're, we're constantly looking at evidence, you know, and, and people in our field are doing excellent studies, looking at who responds best to what. Um, and I think what's exciting is that there are many options. Once you have a device, there are many options in terms of the programming that patients can explore with, with the assistance of their physicians and also with the representatives from the companies. Um, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, patients, I always hope that my patients' pain, like the, the, their pain never gets worse, but sometimes it evolves and things change over time. And that's why having the ability to call upon different types of programming can be quite useful. So that whereas when I did the trial, the patient's pain felt one way, but then 10 years later, their pain feels another way. And I'm able to reprogram their device to better capture that pain. So to be more specific about it, so say a patient has a spinal cord stimulator put in after, after lumbar spine surgery, and they have back pain and leg pain. Um, and you know, we do the trial and we do the implant and their pain is great. Um, and they have pain in their lower back and their left leg, but say, you know, maybe six years later, for whatever reason, they develop pain in their right leg as well. Depending on where those electrodes have been placed, I can then reprogram the patient's device so that I can capture both their lower back 
their left leg, which was their original painful areas, but then also additionally their right leg. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits of neuromodulation is that we have this ability to kind of evolve with the patient. Yeah, absolutely. I think that gives a lot of hope to patients that, you know, once they get the device in, it doesn't mean that there's, that's it. That's just one device. They have many different options available in terms of reprogramming. And there are many different companies out there with sort of different programs, as we know. And, you know, once once patients get the device, it's not, it doesn't stop there. I mean, I always tell my patients, once we get your pain perception under control, like how you're feeling from the pain, then we can really look at the rehab process. So say they have a musculoskeletal issue, you know, such as our example that we just used, lower back and leg pain. Once we can get a handle on their pain, then we're able to put them into some more meaningful physical therapy where they can really strengthen. And that combined with the pain relief from the stimulator really stands to improve their overall quality of life. Right. Absolutely. And I, again, I think that's great because it, it gives patients hope that there are many different options available. And once you get the neuro, neurostimulator in, um, you have other options that may be even more beneficial now than they were before. So again, a great option for patients to consider. Um, now, just a, another question. Again, I think that you know a lot of times neuromodulation is definitely the answer for many patients, but do you ever find that certain patients don't respond to neuromodulation? And in that case, what would possibly be the next step? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons that patients may not uh, respond to neuromodulation. And in my experience, you know, I think pain is a pain is a lot of things, right? It's, it's how our body responds to on a receptor level, right? You know, the pain nerve fibers, how they fire, but then how those nerve fibers then, you know, ascend into the central nervous system and also how they're processed in the brain. So I think the value, the value of a relationship of a patient with their physician is oftentimes underestimated because I think that if a patient is dealing with a pain processing issue, you know, maybe it's, um, maybe we need to call upon more types of um, cognitive behavioral therapies to help a patient deal or cope with, you know, catastrophizing that may come with the diagnosis of, of having persistent pain. Um, so coping mechanisms and helping our, empowering our patients to develop better coping mechanisms. So more often than not in my practice, I've seen that patients may not do, you know, they may not hit it out of the park with neuromodulation in cases where I probably needed to empower them with better cognitive behavioral coping mechanisms um, and, and address issues of catastrophization um, and, you know, pain anticipation in a better way. So improving that kind of behavioral psychosocial component of, of pain processing first, optimizing that first. Um, and there are, uh, are certainly cases where, you know, everything isn't for everybody, right? And you... There are cases where neuromodulation isn't the answer, where the pain is either far um, distributed or it's due to a systemic disease or, um, you know, they have a mixed type of pain. It's not neuropathic. They may have elements of osteoarthritic pain or nociceptive pain, which is kind of like a dull 
um, constant aching pain, which is a different than our traditional neuropathic pain, which is what neuromodulation is designed for. So I think it all comes down to the ability of a pain physician to peel back the onion and, and look at issues of pain processing um, from a cognitive behavioral standpoint and a psychological standpoint. And then also looking at, you know, identifying whether this patient is suffering from purely neuropathic pain or whether there's other types of pain that are involved, such as related to osteoarthritis or to um, nociceptive pain. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It completely makes sense. And this is something we've spoken about on previous episodes of the podcast as well, but that pain is very sort of multifactorial. There's a biopsychosocial component to it. And it's not always just the physical component that can be bad, but there are many other components that can can exacerbate pain. So I think you definitely um, hit the nail on the head with that, that we have we have to think about everything essentially. And it's not just the fibers sometimes, but a bigger picture than that. So I really do, I really do agree with that. Absolutely. And, um, just briefly sort of, I guess for, for completion's sake, but can you tell us a little bit about the side effects, um, of these procedures and then also briefly the insurance aspect of it? I know we spoke a little bit about that offline, but just so our patients kind of know what to expect hundred percent. So, you know, with any procedure that breaks the skin, there are risks and benefits, right? And so the risks with neuromodulation are common to many interventional procedures. Um, so there's the risk of infection. We try to combat that by appropriate select- appropriately selecting antibiotics for our patients um, and also making sure that we're doing everything with proper sterile technique. There's always the risk of bleeding. Uh, we try to uh, combat that or obviate that by asking patients to properly hold any anticoagulants they may be taking. So say you are a patient who has a history of a heart attack and you're on Plavix. Um, you know, I would work with your cardiologist to find if it would to find out if it would be okay for you to hold your Plavix for the appropriate amount of time. Now, if your cardiologist said that it would, would be too risky, we obviously would not do that. Um, and neuromodulation then may not be the proper therapy for you. Um, but, you know, there are specific guidelines that we as interventional pain physicians follow about how long certain anticoagulants should be held, certain blood thinners should be held. Um, and we certainly make sure that we enforce that properly. There's also the risk of nerve damage always with any procedure that involves the central nervous system, um, both temporary or permanent, you know, um, and, and this can include many things. Um, but that's why it's very important that you, if you're considering a neuromodulation technique, that you are seeing a physician who is, in my mind, board certified in neuromodulation um, or board certified in interventional pain and has also a significant amount of experience with uh, neuromodulatory therapies, have done a lot of trials and a lot of implants. I think experience builds um, uh, the best set of judgment that a physician can have. I absolutely agree with that. That experience is very important and which is why it's great to have women like you in leadership positions in the field of neuromodulation. And then um, briefly in terms of insurance uh, for our patients as well. Yes. So 
For me personally, I try to work with the patients and their insurance coverage as much as possible. You know, unfortunately, being a persistent pain patient, um, can there are so many costs that are associated with doctor's visits and potentially medications and, um, you know, hand, making their houses or homes handicap accessible or uh, walkers and orthotics and all of these things. And it adds up. So I, as a physician, I always try to help the patient work with their insurance. Uh, and that's why we obtain authorization prior to the trial and then also prior to the implant. And for patients who are using their insurance, it's most commonly that it's covered by their insurance. Um, and in fact, you know, we would never proceed with a procedure that was not covered by a patient's insurance or they did not feel comfortable with, with the um, fee schedule of whatever it may cost them out of pocket. Yeah, that's great for patients to know. So I appreciate you telling us about that. And a um, couple more questions before we get to the end. But um, you mentioned peripheral nerve stimulator as part of uh, neuromodulation, the field of neuromodulation in general, but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? We do see uh, pelvic pain patients regularly in our office, and oftentimes uh, they may get pudendal nerve blocks. So tell us a bit more about peripheral nerve stim and specifically for pelvic pain. We would love to hear about that. You know, I, I feel personally, I feel very strongly that peripheral nerve stimulation is for pelvic pain patients is appropriate if you are truly isolated singular nerves that are implicated uh, for that particular patient's pelvic pain. And I would, I would say that that slam dunk patient is very far and few between because most of my patients have had extensive pelvic surgery and it's not just one nerve. And, and certainly not just one nerve that can be named that has been damaged. Um, and, you know, if you can name the nerve that may be damaged, peripheral nerve stimulation is a reasonable thing to try. Um, however, I would say for the majority of patients who have pelvic pain, whether it's from a systemic cause um, or whether it's from extensive pelvic surgery, it's often hard to identify that peripheral nerve in isolation. Interesting. And so just a bit more about that as well. Do you feel that peripheral nerve stims may be sort of on the horizon for certain types of those sort of singular nerve uh, damaged patients? So for example, um, I often see patients in my office that may have pudendal nerve injury after labor and delivery. And, you know, it's, it's, sort of targeted in the sense that it's unilateral in the pudendal nerve distribution. And we know for the most part, it's a nerve neuropathic sort of etiology or cause of the pain. But for someone like that, would that patient be a good candidate for peripheral nerve stimulator essentially? And then how does that work compared to something like a DRG or dorsal root ganglion stimulator versus spinal cord stimulator? I think that's an excellent question. And I think that's where the value of diagnostic blocks really comes into play. So that if I have surround, so say we're saying it's the pedendal nerve, if I surround the pedendal nerve with local anesthetic and you can tell me as a patient that your pain is completely decreased or completely gone or 90% decreased or 95% decreased, then yeah, I will say, okay, you know what? I mean, if the pain comes back, which unfortunately I expect that in most cases it will, um, because sometimes just breaking the pain cycle is not enough, then I certainly think in that case, a, a peripheral nerve stimulator placed in the distribution of the pedendal nerve 
would be a great, elegant, non-invasive way of, um, of approaching it. Um, now, peripheral nerve stimulators can be placed for short-term basis or for long-term basis. You know, there are some issues that also arise with peripheral nerve stimulators, um, as there are with, you know, dorsal root ganglion stimulators, leads can migrate, um, meaning they, they may move off of the nerve and you may not have the same type of, um, you know, pain relief. Um, luckily, these, these, the electrodes can be placed back into the perfect position. Obviously, no physician ever wants to take their patient through that. But, you know, that is one of the risks that we, we run with both of these therapies. Um, but I think that if you can isolate the peripheral nerve by doing diagnostic blocks and the patients really respond with a high level of pain relief to those diagnostic blocks, then I think a peripheral nerve stimulator is a less invasive way to, to go ahead and to, to try to see if it um, alleviates the patient's pain. Um, you know, I, I understand it's very frustrating to be a patient who suffers from persistent pain because it often seems like the physicians who are treating you are trying different things to help you. Um, unfortunately, as we talked about on this podcast tonight, pain is the result of multiple levels of processing. It's our nerve endings. It's how our nerve endings interface with our central nervous system. And then it's how our brains perceive that transmission of those neural signals. So there's a lot of factors at play. and you know, it's not as simple as, um, you know, as if you have, say, high blood pressure and you take this pill, this will lower your blood pressure. You know, it's not that binary. Um, and I think that re the relationship between a patient and their pain physician has to be one where, where they understand that, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to do our best to understand and identify where your pain is. And we may end up trying a variety of treatments but ultimately, we're going to continue to work together until we find the one that is most effective for you. Um, in my personal practice, I've found that the most durable therapy for pelvic pain has been dorsal root ganglion stimulation. Um, but again, you know, that's, that's the patients who have that um, therapeutic relationship with me. I really love the way that you put that in terms of it's not binary, essentially. It's, as pain physicians, we have to think about many sort of different sources of the pain and how to attack it. It's not necessarily that one size fits all and every patient has a very different sort of treatment plan. So I really like the way that you said that because that's one of the reasons I love what we do because each patient is different. Each treatment plan is very much uh, tailored to that patient. Um, and as we're winding down, I know we've had a lovely conversation. I really appreciate your time. And I know that you are very active in the field of neuromodulation. You're one of the few women leaders, which, uh, which is great. We need more women leaders and more women pain physicians doing what you're doing. And I know you're also very active in research and the advancement of the field in general, but could you tell us what you foresee in the future of this field, something sort of on the horizon, um, for patients and for, for physicians like myself to look out for? Yeah, you know, it's a really exciting time in medicine um, and in neuromodulation and interventional pain particularly. I think first and foremost, we're finding out that we can affect patients' pain with smaller and smaller amounts of energy. And what that means um, is that 
these therapies can potentially last longer and longer for patients. And their batteries, the, the, the generators, the battery generators that drive and power these electrical devices, are we're able to miniaturize them. And they're able to have become smaller and smaller because our energy requirements are lower and lower. Um, so that's that's one thing that I think is is fascinating and extremely exciting. And just as you said when we started this podcast tonight, Alopa, you said, you know, during your training, you've seen the kind of really, you know, the market of neuromodulation really blossom at, a, at an accelerating rate, right? I mean, you know, if you look at where it was when you were a resident and where you are now as an attending, you'll see that that it's just growing exponentially, and that that is very exciting um, because that's going to drive the technology to be even smaller and less invasive. And, you know, as a physician who implants these therapies, I'm so excited about that. Um, Cause I think, you know, pain patients have felt ostracized for so long, um, you know, that they have to live their life differently and have different considerations that anything we can do to help them feel more like them, their old self, right, is, is a great thing. And a smaller device is, is certainly one of those things. Um, another huge thing is that, you know, we've talked about neuromodulation as a way to help neuropathic pain. And that's the pain that's characterized by burning, tingling, or painful burning and tingling. Um, what we are starting to see is that with neuromodulation, we may actually be able to affect different types of nerve fibers. What this means for the patient is that whereas we were just focused on burning and tingling type pain, now we can focus on that dull, aching pain or arthritic pain. So this field of, of trying to target different type of nerve fibers is growing um, as we speak. Um, and I, I really look forward to that developing more and um, that translating into a greater breadth of therapies that we can offer our patients. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I really do agree with that. The technological advancements have come a long way, and I think they're just accelerating faster and faster sort of every year. So I'm also excited to see that. And kudos to you for keeping up with all of the technologies and, you know, teaching the future fellows and future attendings essentially of the field as well. So that is great. And we would love to tell our listeners about the podcast that you have in the works. Would you tell us a bit more about that as well as where people can find you and your podcast? Sure. So I'm, I am working on developing a, a podcast that should be out in, in the next few months. Um, and essentially it is targeted toward educating pain patients. Um, you know, in my personal practice, I, I do not like to call call it chronic pain because I think it implies an element of hopelessness. And I make a point of using the term persistent pain. And sometimes I'll have patients who stop me and say, well, Dr. Joe, why do you call persistent pain? Why don't you call it chronic pain? And I say, because oh, I think, you know, yeah, we identify that this, this pain is, is quite challenging to treat, but it doesn't mean that we don't have any options for you and that we should lose hope. Um, but I think the term chronic pain has become kind of this, this element of hopelessness um, for our patient population. So I'm, I'm looking with this podcast to, to do similar to what you're doing, which is educating patients about therapies in a thoughtful, um, intelligent, evidence-based um, way that is also really entertaining, you know? 
um, something that you want to listen to and share with, say, you know, any loved one who may be suffering from persistent pain. And so, you know, the thought is to not just focus on neuromodulation, but to focus on a variety of things, whether that's, you know, you know, very invasive, such as spinal surgery, um, or whether it's or pelvic surgery or something that's very, you know, much less invasive, such as nutraceuticals or acupuncture or um, biofeedback. So I really want to explore the full gamut of therapies um, for patients. And I really want to give them good, high quality evidence in a very entertaining way. And so that's, that's what I'm looking to do. Um, because I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's Dr. Google out there that doesn't always lead us to the right answers. Um, and I really think that we need to, we need to do better than Dr. Google. And we are so excited to have you on this podcast. And as a fellow physician podcaster, I just recently learned that only 20% of podcasts are led by women. So we're excited to have you be a part of our podcast community. And where can people find you on social media? And also if they want to be your patient as well, please tell us a bit more. Sure. So um, I am under my name, Karen Patel MD on Instagram, on LinkedIn, um, on Facebook. And uh, that links you directly to my practice where I am right now, a place called the Spine and Pain Institute of New York. Um, as well as Lenox Hill Hospital. So you can certainly find me there. The podcast itself will have its own social um, and its own website. And so um, stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Dr. Kiran Patel, for being with us on this episode. We're so excited um, to, to share this with our listeners. And um, again, thank you. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I think what you're doing here is really groundbreaking and and really a, a true service to patients. Um, so thank you for having me here. And I look forward to, your, to listening to your episodes like I do. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.